Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and, and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. While post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is a personal struggle, the effects do not stop at the victim. When a parent has PTSD, their words and actions can affect the mental health and development of children. This week's guest, Karen May, is the Associate Director of Military and Emergency Services, Health Australia, and is also currently working on her PhD at University of Adelaide, focusing on developing a group program for service children living with parental post-traumatic stress. Karen has worked with different trauma populations across her 28-year career, from developing countries, refugees, homelessness, youth at risk, Indigenous young people, veterans and emergency service personnel and their families. Karen's background is social science, community development, psychotherapy, advocacy and research. Stay tuned as Karen delves into her lived experience of PTSD and her experience co-parenting with a veteran partner with PTSD. Hello, listeners, and thanks for tuning in to another episode. Today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Karen May. Karen, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Karen, do you just want to give us a bit of a background on your professional career, where it all started for you? Because you've done a lot of things and quite diverse, but I'm keen to hear your story and how you got into it. Yeah, I guess I've always had a bit of an interest in social justice issues right from the get-go. I studied a Bachelor of Social Science in Community Development and I guess over my career I've worked with lots of different trauma populations, if you like. Um, I sort of started out working with refugees and moved into different areas of disadvantaged youth and stolen generations, Indigenous youth in Sydney and, yeah, just, just different populations, uh, including a bit of time overseas in developing countries. So it's been, it's been a, a journey of learning. Um, I always sort of saw myself as uh, a bit of a sponge and, and trying to understand, you know, the resilience of humanity as well as, you know, some of the challenges and barriers we have um, systemically in society. So that's um, sort of led me to the area of working with, I started out with the REPAT Foundation in uh, 2015. And at that stage, government had announced the closure of REPAT Hospital, which was quite contentious at the yeah. time. Um, so I worked with the board and the CEO at the time to look at what the future held for the organisation. Because the organisation, REPAT Foundation, was the first uh, philanthropic funder 
of research into post-traumatic stress disorder. And that was quite important because as a philanthropically funded organisation, it could do independent research. Mm. So it was actually started with a group of veterans who wanted to understand more about, yeah, their prognosis, like what is this thing and, and can I get better and what caused it? So it doesn't seem like that long ago, but yeah, that's really when research sort of emerged in Australia and similarly the government-funded, DVA-funded research centre was uh, started in the same year. So yeah, so it's had a bit of a, uh, an interesting history and I came on board at that transition phase and we advocated that research uh, was really, really important in whatever the government considered to build next for veterans' health and to have research co-located with, a, with the hospital, with a mental health hospital for inpatients and outpatients. And so we managed to achieve that in 2017. The uh, Jamie Larkham Centre was built and, and launched, which is the new veteran PTSD mental health precinct. Yeah, so we, we co-located there. And the other thing that we felt was very important was to have a centre which enabled collaboration between universities mm. uh, for research, collaboration with different uh, disciplines, uh, different sectors uh, to sort of provide that real holistic perspective of health uh, for, for veterans. We also as an organisation expanded to include emergency services in 2015 and families mm. and that's a bit I guess what we're going to talk about today but yeah. that was a really important uh, shift for us back then. So during your 28-year career or so, you, did, you, did you start out with the uh, – because some of the trauma populations that you've, been, you've had experience dealing with, developing countries, uh, some of those are – what was an example of some of those countries that you – I spent a lot of time uh, doing projects in the Philippines wow. uh, and, yeah, love it, love it over there. I still yep. uh, go back and visit friends that I worked with there. I also worked in maternal health, which was largely done remotely from Australia, okay. but we were working with interesting uh, communities in the DR Congo, really sort of yeah, challenging settings, yeah. working, training birth attendants, pygmy communities in the mountains, training programs in maternal health and sexual health in India. Yeah, so uh, Ethiopia, it was, it was a, yeah, a really wow. broad program. So refugees, homelessness, youth at risk, Indigenous young people, Veterans, how with those different populations? How, I mean, what was some of the challenges that you had to deal with, and what was what was some of the things that you're most pleased about, or or that you're uh, yeah most interested in? I guess the challenges in working with trauma is being faced with that brutal side of humanity. But the thing that always inspired me was the incredible resilience and then compassion, you know, of our community to be able to get in there in really, really challenging situations and rise above. So, yeah, so it's just that sort of, I guess, dichotomy of what it makes yeah. us to be human and, yeah, just trying to sort of support people who've, who've had a really tough time move through that to some sense of quality of life. And so was it from there that you went down the route of the Veterans Emergency Services PTSD, and, and this is how we we get into the, the children and the family holistic view. But tell us how that evolved. Yeah, yeah. Well, I working at the hospital. I've also got emergency service uh, members in my family. I've had veterans in my family. My great grandfather, uh, they believe, died by suicide after the war oh, wow. uh, with PTSD. And 
I guess, yeah, I, I had, uh, at the time, I had a family member who had uh, someone actually in the hospital where I was working um, as a veteran. And it, yeah, it just really struck a chord with me. I also have some lived experience. My former partner was a veteran with PTSD and we parented kids in a blended family together. Yeah. So I had that direct uh, experience of being a partner. And I've also had my own PTSD journey as well, not from service, but had that journey of recovery and, and living with PTSD. And yeah, so I think all of those things combined. Yeah. Made sense. So, so tell us your first experience in it. What was some of the challenges you faced as you, as you went into PTSD and affiliations with families and precarious okay. trauma? Yeah. So there wasn't, uh, when we sort of commenced down the, the road of looking at research and programs for families, serving families, there wasn't much around. So in the veteran sector, you've got agencies like Open Arms in emergency services. Uh, there's virtually nothing. It's kind of a discretionary uh, thing that happens with the organisation. So whether that's fireys, whether that's uh, paramedics, uh, police, it becomes a bit of a discretionary thing for the EAP programs, for example, whether they can or, or are able to treat or have you know allow some of their funding to extend to, to treat families. But it was a really big need. And, you know, veterans and emergency service personnel themselves were telling me, what about my partner? What about my kids? Uh, there's nothing for them. So, yeah, so I just saw a really, really big gap in that area. And then obviously having my own personal experience with that as well. Uh, it's a very, a very exhausting, lonely journey. You know, there's been research since that um, our organisation funded with Professor Sharon Lawn at Flinders. She's been a real ambassador and leader in this area. Again, she's lived experience as a carer. And yeah, and her research uh, with Elaine Waddell showed that, uh, it was a first study on partners, showed that there's this really big burden and, and, and a lot of partners feeling very alone in that journey of being a carer. They're trying to navigate the health system for their partner and keep their partner well, but then they're also trying to manage the family unit Sometimes that involves protecting kids from symptoms, yeah, and, and um, their, their health comes last uh, while they're looking after everybody else. So, yeah, so that is, it's just been an area. And for me, kids and intergenerational trauma is a longstanding interest of mine. You know, working with trauma populations, refugees, Indigenous youth, et cetera, you see in intergenerational trauma come up again and again. So I just felt that in Australia we're not really tackling the children and in fact internationally it's yeah an issue that isn't really being addressed through therapeutic interventions or programs uh, it's starting to get a little bit more traction now which is fantastic is there any countries out there that are doing this well as far as the family approach so I've done some big sort of systematic reviews literature reviews and as yet no there are some programs that are targeting service life so looking at what it's like to be a military kid for example and just the the life of a parent going on deployments and returning and that kind of thing, um, not so much about living with PTSD. So there's other, obviously, civilian um, programs that look at um, having a parent with a mental health issue, but there's real nuances to service families. And when you combine the cultural differences in service families and how that plays out, yeah, we need really targeted interventions for that. So as, as, as we look at trying to address PTSD and carious trauma impact on those close to those suffering with PTSD in the family. 
what what has been the study and what's been the analysis and, and stuff from what you've been doing? Yeah, so um, the first challenge I, I took on was to do an interview, a qualitative interview study, interviewing children themselves. I really felt it was important to get their voice in the research and that hasn't been done. So um, I interviewed children aged between nine and 17 and got their perspectives about their experiences of living with a service parent with PTSD. I also felt it was important to interview the parents and get their perspectives about what they observed were their children's experiences and challenges. So I interviewed the parents with PTSD from a military or an emergency service background and also the co-parents. And so the families weren't uh, necessarily together. Some of them were separated. They, I didn't interview all family members from the same family necessarily. Some did, but in other situations, it was just a child or just a parent. So they were sort of treated as separate cohorts. But interestingly, the parents and the children sort of echoed the same phenomena. Yeah, there wasn't really any outliers in terms of uh, issues raised. It was really, really consistent, you know, the difficulties and the challenges that those families face. Yeah, it was, it's, it was really tough. It was really emotional. It was emotional, like even just transcribing the interviews. What were the, some of the results and the findings from it? Like how did you, what, what was determined? And- uh, so I came, four main themes came out in the findings. And the big, big one that, that um, you know, came across all from all participants was due to parental PTSD, there's a lack of emotional stability for the children. Mm. And when you think about children developing themselves emotionally, that lack of stability, you know, dysregulated emotions, dysregulated arousal states uh, affects their nervous systems and affects their emotional development. And children are literally little sponges, you know, they're, um, they're learning ways to cope, they're learning behaviours from their parents. So when you've got a family, you know, really in mental health crisis, it's not just the service member who's suffering, it's the whole family. And the service members are aware of that. And I guess that was the thing, it's such, a, such an intense, um, sensitive topic but I was so grateful for the brave participants and families that came forward and said, you know, from the parents' perspective, I want help for my family, I want help for my partner, I want help for my kids, it, I can't get it and I, I really, I feel like, you know, I'm causing them pain. And then from the kids' perspective, you know, as young as nine were saying to me, I want to do this interview because I know it's about kids like me and maybe I can help other kids going through this. Mm. So just just incredible, incredible stuff about a really difficult topic, kind of, you know, airing your dirty washing if you like. Yeah. But unless unless we can listen to this these stories, this voice of what it's what it's actually like at in at at home, yeah, we're not we're not gonna be able to design uh, interventions that can really help these families. So I felt it was really, really important to get that voice. And it's interesting because people said to me, oh, why are you interviewing the kids, you know? But I think you get a unique perspective by hearing directly from them about what were their main concerns. And the big things are for veterans uh, with PTSD, anger. Mm. Anger is a big one. And we see that from the research, uh, you know, um, my colleague Miranda Van Hoof has done the big 
transition and well-being study on on defence populations, and anger was a really big topic and really big indicator. I think that uh, when that plays out in the home, the behaviour of of anger, and you know, it is a PTSD symptom. This is not about shame or blame. It's a PTSD symptom. Trauma is a psychosocial issue, and we send, we tend to forget that we focus yeah. on the individual symptoms of you know, nightmares, depression, anxiety, et cetera, but it's actually psychosocial. It affects your ability to relate to others and that emotional dysregulation is an absolute core symptom of PTSD. So when we think about that from a parenting perspective and, you know, that going from naught to 10 uh, emotionally and on the anger, anger scale with really extreme emotions, sudden emotions, volatile emotions, that is going to impact the kids. So the big, big thing across the board, kids said, if there was one thing they could change, it would be anger and yelling. Yeah, right. What sort of impact or what sort of mental ill health conditions are we finding in kids of parents who have PTSD? Yeah, well, all the kids um, and families that participated in my study talked about whether it be a diagnosed or an undiagnosed a mental health issue. It gets largely described for children as emotional and behavioural issues, okay. which makes sense uh, because that's what is happening at home and so there's a lot of emulation of emotional dysregulation in, in the kids. But it can, as they get older, the more serious diagnosis tends to come as they get older. So for boys, I uh, saw a lot of suspected or diagnosed ADHD for girls, uh, particularly teenage girls, it was more borderline personality disorder. But you've also got, you know, self-harming, suicidality and that kind of thing as well. But at the core of it, uh, some of the parents and the kids actually said they weren't sure if their diagnosis was actually correct and they felt it had more to do with living with trauma and, and more of a sort of a secondary trauma type effect. So, yeah, so I think, um, you know, again, that just that just sort of illustrates how important it is to do this research and actually start to get that real early intervention because perhaps we could be preventing some of those more serious uh, mental health issues down the track. And how do we recognise this, Karen? In, is it going to people who are suffering from PTSD and then approaching their families or is it more reactive, waiting for them to come forward and say, listen... I know that I'm unwell, but also my family's starting to suffer. Mm. Is it is it the reactive side or are we hoping to go to create that awareness and education and the opportunity to get in there and early intervention yeah. with the family members to, to have a better chance of successful outcomes? Well, most of the families that spoke to me um, had tried to get help and often the first presentation came at school or it came uh, with the teachers raising it that a child wasn't coping at school or was looking out the window and not able to concentrate or was bursting into tears suddenly or um, having an anger outburst, uh, not getting on socially, uh, getting bullied, sitting on their own. All those sorts of things were playing out at school. But with the family in crisis, so, you know, you can imagine um, they're, they're trying to manage and navigate and, and understand PTSD and what it's going to mean for them um, as, a, as an individual, the treatment options, dealing with work cover, stress, um, yeah. you know, real practical changes in life too, having to move house sometimes. I had quite a few regional uh, first responders that were literally kicked out of their house 
once they got a diagnosis, you know, police housing, for example. So the whole family is dealing with really practical changes, let alone the actual PTSD itself and getting, wow. you know, diagnostics, navigating health systems. As well as that, if they've got children, their children are going to school and trying to keep mm-hmm. it together and manage at school. And so what was happening was the teachers were, you know, kids were getting into trouble. And so that was adding another stress level for the family. And yeah, a lot of them were trying to talk to the school and say, um, you know, uh, can my child see the counsellor or what do you recommend? Some of them were trying to get help externally outside of the school, but there just wasn't a lot of understanding and a lot of options. So yeah. What, I mean, you mentioned a lot of challenges there. What, what are some of the solutions around that? Like how do we, because I mean, people getting kicked out of homes because they've been diagnosed with that. I mean, that's that's a cultural issue uh, within, you know, the service sector itself. Yeah. But then other challenges like, you know, not having a home, going but going going to school, trying to put on a brave face, money for for support and professional help outside of that, mm-hmm. possibility of moving locations if they're yeah. continually moving around regional areas. Yeah. I mean, there's a number of issues there and how do we address that, do you think? So there's some really great new programs. There's a program from Defence called uh, Defence School Mentors. And so they are spread out working across schools for defence children. They were largely targeting current serving. So um, kids who'd had parents deploy, you know, recently and they'd sort of uh, work with those kids. Um, the group in South Australia that I've been working with, they're now um, ex- trying to expand their scope to include former serving uh, military kids uh, that may be, you know, encountering PTSD or, or other transition issues um, in the home. So that's a fantastic program. But then for emergency services, that doesn't exist. So it would be fantastic if a program like that could, you know, broaden and encompass um, emergency service kids uh, potentially going through similar things. And this is a conversation we had at the conference yesterday was, you know, I think uh, Sandy McFarlane raised it as well. Is there a, you know, perhaps we don't have a DVA equivalent for emergency services. Um, There was talk from Home Affairs about a national action plan. Mm. But at the moment, we've got a state by state, you know, uh, system where it's so diverse and it it ranges in its approach, you know, from service to service. So police, paramedics, um, ambulance, rescue, uh, volunteers, it ranges from service to service, but it also ranges from state to state. So depending on if you're a police officer in Victoria versus New South Wales versus South Australia, et cetera, you're going to have different options and your family's yeah. going to have different options. So we really do need some strong guidance on what services uh, should provide as a minimum to the member suffering an injury from service such as PTSD and for the families, the minimum of what they need to offer and there needs to be funding behind that. Do you think we need an overarching body that combines all the services and and every every state to simplify the system and the funding of side of things. I think we probably do. It needs that federal approach at least. You know, even from the point of view of standards that are you know if if they're managed state by state, there needs to be some way of managing performance from the leadership level. So it can't just be rhetoric. It can't just be a nice little guide that says it'd be great if you guys did this. It's actually got to be something that that leaders in service by service, state by state need to adhere to. A bit like when they do health assessments, 
you know, physical health assessments. You know, the services currently have to meet certain health standards. That needs to come across on mental health as well. So tell us, as a result of the study and looking at this holistic view with the whole family and the impact that PTSD service people have and the suffering from PTSD and the impact on the family, where do we go from here? What's, what do we need to do? How do we improve this? How do we pick up these challenges at an earlier point to give these kids a better chance at having better success, more successful outcomes yeah. for, their, for their mental health? Well, you know, it, I, I just hear in some of the voices of the kids that said to me, you know, some of the teenagers, you know, 17 said to me, I wish somebody had have asked me how I was. You know, the school, the school counsellor knew that they had a parent with PTSD, but they said, you're the first person that's asked me how it affected me. That is just incredible to me, to a young person who's, you know, not been without issues, to have no one, no one along that journey ask them about how they're doing. And partners say the same thing. Um, so I think we've got to educate health professionals, you know, we've got to educate GPs, we've got to educate schools and have a greater awareness around mental health generally and what it is for kids having a parent with mental health issues. There's a lot around service culture and I think we need to raise awareness around that as well. But um, yeah, some of the other some of the other things I think we can do is develop programs specifically they could be delivered by, you know, government agencies like Open Arms or other not-for-profits out there, but deliver programs which are really targeted around skills and functioning. How, you know, it's, it's all very well to treat symptoms of the individual, but this is a psychosocial condition. It affects their relationships. We need programs that are going to target the whole family. So giving the kids skills to cope from a really early age, a lot of psychoeducation is important. A lot of kids said, I didn't know what was happening and why. Mm. And parents said, we didn't know how to explain it and we didn't know whether we should explain it. So there was this real discord of understanding for kids. They knew something was going on, but often it was sort of hidden, real conspiracy of silence around service and I can't share my traumas, so I'm not going to talk about it at all. But kids can see, you know, what something's yeah. going on. So we need to get better at psychoeducation and developing programs. I personally feel that group programs are so valuable because they reduce stigma. When you're in a group of other kids, for example, talking about their experiences, it starts to normalise what you're going through and give you a kind of permission to talk about what you're going through. Uh, shared experience. Um, it's, it's empowering because you know you're not alone then and you can start to learn from others about ways of uh, coping yeah. and see a, see a way through this. So, yeah, so um, that's my next project is actually starting in term two of this year, school in Adelaide. We're doing a pilot program. It's a co-design program, which means getting feedback from the participants and the parents um, to let me know what we need more of or what we need less of or, or um, little ways of improving the program, but it'll run for eight weeks. And yeah, my hope is that we can develop a really great program that can be rolled out to different organisations to support these families. It sounds really exciting. And, and you're with Mesha. And tell us a bit about that organisation and the great work that they're up to as well. Yeah. So yeah, as I said, so the uh, REPAT Foundation moved to Jamie Larkham Centre and rebranded to Military and Emergency Services Health Australia. 
So we're a research centre, but we also, um, we're philanthropically funded, but we also do training and programs. So our programs uh, come from the research. So we develop them uh, with an evidence base under research. Mm -hmm. Our difference, I guess, from other centres is that we're focused on that extra criteria, that extra criteria of psychosocial function. So we like to build innovative uh, treatments and innovative programs that treat the f someone's functioning, help their quality of life, help them be able to leave the house, help them get back to maybe um, education or volunteering or working. And our programs are seeing that happen. Interestingly, by treating functioning, we actually see a side effect of symptom reduction. So it kind of brings a different perspective. Yeah. If you only target uh, symptom reduction, you don't get improved functioning. So, you know, family might still break down. Yeah. Whereas if you approach functioning, you often get a lowering of symptoms. So, yeah, so it's, it's exciting. Uh, we're a great, great team, lots of innovations, everyone from um, amazing data analysts through to uh, long-term, uh, you know, epidemiologists, uh, qualitative researchers like myself. And we have a big student program as well, which is amazing because it's sort of bringing that next generation of um, clinicians and next generation of researchers are coming through with a deep, deep understanding of the issues. How long has it been going for? Uh, so since 95. Uh, okay. So wow. what's that, over 20? Yeah, 27. Seven years, yeah. yeah. Wow, that's incredible. So, I mean, the work you're doing is amazing. And there's so many aspects to it, but it sounds like the team's growing as well. Yeah. What excites you most about moving forward? Um, it just excites me to work with a team that have this incredible passion. A lot of us on the team are lived experience, and that's a real value of ours, um, that we believe programs that are lived experience and research even that's lived experience um, holds incredible value. And we just really hope to start to shift the mental health paradigm in Australia and indeed internationally. And we work uh, with different groups internationally on some of these topics. We've, um, we've founded a research consortia which focuses on service families. It's the first international uh, service families oh. research consortia. So that's fantastic. We have three meetings a year with different uh, country participants and a bunch of amazing Australian researchers in this space as well as uh, practitioners and, and lived experience stakeholders who bring, you know, the issues from the coalface into the research area. That, that's what we're all about. It's all about we don't want to go out there and tell, you know, tell industry and, and families what, what we need to research. We want them to tell us what the issues are and we can then mm. respond. Well, you can clearly see that that's your approach to everything you do, putting the people at the centre of everything, but not just the people suffering from the illness but also the people around those people the support networks of those people suffering which which is too often forgotten but um su such an important piece of the puzzle to get their input and i'm so glad that you got the kids voice in there. i mean it's logical to think that you would ask the kids and have them involved but the fact that it really hasn't been done yeah. before is quite incredible yeah, well, the issue of intergenerational traumas that have came out uh, from Holocaust generations. Yeah. But it, it sort of is fascinating that we really haven't done a lot more in that area since then. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, so I think it's a real opportunity. It's a hard topic. It's a sensitive topic. But we kind of need to delve into that hard stuff um, so that we can actually help these families. 
Well, Karen, I think you're doing an incredible job. You're clearly passionate about what you do and um, and Mesher and all the things that they're up to in Adelaide. Well done and congratulations on where things are at. Uh, how can people get in touch with you guys? So we have a website. So that's uh, www.mesha.com, uh, sorry, .org.au. So that's M-E-S-H-A, Military and Emergency Services Health Australia. Mm-hmm. And our main uh, phone number is 87 0020880. Yeah, we're always happy to take inquiries. A bunch of amazing uh, programs that we offer, lived experience programs to help functioning. We have a trauma art psychotherapist who offers free counselling to family members, which is you know kind of a rare yeah. a rare service. Um, that's in South Australia. But uh, we collaborate with researchers, as I said, nationally and internationally, and, and are happy to have those conversations about. You know, what next? Yeah, well, congratulations on that. Uh, and thanks for sharing the story and your journey and also the great things that you're up to. We appreciate it and thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.